Welcome to the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. This podcast focuses on financial planning and investment topics. Our goal is to help you make better financial decisions. We are fierce advocates of fiduciary advice. What does fiduciary mean? It means that anyone who advises you should always put your needs first. We hope you get some value from this episode. Thanks for listening. Standard housekeeping, anything on the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast should not be considered individual financial planning or investment advice. For that, we recommend you consult your own properly registered and licensed professional. Welcome back. This is episode 34 of the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me again is Dan Alberth. Good afternoon, Dan. Good afternoon. Well, if you're if you're been following us, this is our third part of a series following the book Excess Returns, a comparative study of the methods of the world's greatest investors by Frederick Van Haberbeek. Just continuing on, let's just jump right into it. Part two of this book is dealt deals with buying, holding, and selling. So we've talked about mindset and how hard this is and that it is possible to beat the market, or at least some people anyway in the past have beat the market over long periods of time. We talked about things to look for when seeking bargains, things to avoid when seeking bargains, and also some mistakes and pitfalls and how to maybe mitigate those mistakes. So now we're getting a little bit more into the actionable ways of looking at things. So let's get right into it. There are various types of stocks on the market, and each one of them should be approached in a different way. Every investor who wants to make money must know these stock categories, their particular behavior, and how they should be traded. So different types of stocks must be traded differently. Investors don't have to dabble in every type of stock. It's probably better to pick one's fights carefully. One can specialize in a few types of stocks with which one feels comfortable and which fit well within one's personal style and philosophy. Many top investors do just that. They focus on certain stock types and they avoid others. For instance, Glenn Greenberg is not fond of cyclicals and turnarounds and Warren Buffett is not a great fan of turnarounds either. There are no free lunches. No stock is easy to trade, and for all stock types, it is indispensable to have deep knowledge and to perform a thorough due diligence. A recurring theme among the trading strategies for all stock types is to buy and sell gradually. Top investors are unanimously positive about the merits of this practice, and they apply it with almost any type of stock. And he goes through a long list of all kinds of different situations of stocks, different sectors of stocks, and goes into the details of that. We're not going to do that here. Again, this is a very meaty book with lots of good information that could be used as a reference, reference book. Buy the book, study the book, read the book, highlight the book. If you have ambition to become a stock picker, this might be a good reference for you. So what are some considerations when buying and selling? Back to the book. Top investors distinguish themselves through their thorough and serious due diligence. They question their own opinion by checking all that could go wrong. They know that they buy from a seller who may be very sophisticated. 
or may even be better informed than themselves, like an insider. And they realize that the vast majority of cheap stocks are cheap for a reason. Therefore, they give serious attention to the bear case. Bear case being a bear, like a bear market. Bear markets fall. They're paying attention to what happens if this trade goes bad. What happens if this investment goes bad? What could go wrong? What's the worst case scenario here? Now, when it comes to the actual purchase of stocks, top investors apply the following guidelines. Patience. Intelligent investors don't compromise when it comes to their investment criteria. I'm going to read that one again. Intelligent investors do not compromise when it comes to their investment criteria. They exercise patience and they are not afraid to hold serious cash balances if they can't find stocks to meet their stringent criteria. They don't sacrifice returns by relaxing their target price and discount requirements just to be invested all the time. Gradual buying. Top investors accumulate positions over time. They seldom buy large positions overnight. The rationale is simple. A stock's fair value is noisy, and it is almost impossible to call the bottom of a stock. So it makes perfect sense to spread one's purchases over a period of time. Averaging down. Closely related to gradual buying is the practice of buying more of a stock when it declines in price, provided that the original investment thesis remains valid. In this way, one can buy an even more attractive stock on its way down. So that's the idea. You want to buy as low as possible. And if it's a great business and now it's just on sale, buy more, average down. But I think the, the, the key thing there is that as long as your original investment thesis is intact, which means, like we said before, you have to keep analyzing these businesses that you own and make sure everything is the same. Because it's possible that it's going down because something changed and you better be aware. That's what makes this stuff so difficult. You can't know it all. Now, selling. Most people base their sell decisions on instincts, feel, rumors, and the like. To force themselves to stay rational and logical in their sales decisions, top investors, by contrast, adhere to solid exit strategies. Top investors know that it is a mistake to sell on a hunch. Before selling, they always reassess the situation to determine if they have all the elements to make the decision. Once the picture is clear, they sell the stock under four circumstances. One, they have lost confidence in their original investment thesis. So that takes some humility. You just got to say, eh, we were wrong or something changed. They realize that they don't understand the company as well as they thought they did. The price is getting far above the intrinsic value. It's just overpriced. It's so high and nothing's changed in the business that there's a case to be made there. Or the stock can be replaced with a better bargain. Here's a quote. We try not to have many investing rules, but there is one that has served us well. If we decide that we were wrong about something in terms of why we did it, we exit. Period. We never invent new reasons to continue with a position when the original reasons are no longer available. From David Einhorn. All these guys seem to subordinate their egos. How humble they are yeah. in evaluating their situation and second-guessing 
re going through their systems as we talked about in the previous episode about processes how every time they make a decision they're reevaluating their their process to make sure that their decision is correct and that the process is correct they're always reevaluating themselves and the humility of doing that it's it's astounding to me and along those lines i mean what what i see is like they're just so ruthless with themselves oh we were wrong. There, there, there's no decision fatigue here. There's a process that may be very rigorous. It may fatigue the average person. But once they've, they've got their process, and if something doesn't fit the process and it's down a little bit from where they bought it, they're wrong. Boom. They don't stay wrong. They're out. They're moving on to the best ideas. And you know, I've, I've had situations periodically where I'll have a conversation with somebody who owns a stock that's gone They've, they've owned it for whatever reason. They, 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 they brought it to us. It was something they fell in love with. It was part of their play money or whatever. And they, now they own this stock. Maybe they bought it for $50 a share and now it's $25 a share. And they've just never been able to sell it because they didn't want to sell at a loss. They were just afraid of, you know, they've heard that old adage, you don't, you don't lose unless you sell. And it's this, this bias to just hold forever because it always goes back up to an all-time high. They don't always do that. The question that I would often pose with these individuals is, okay, if I gave you $100,000 today, new money to invest, would you buy that stock above all others? Above all other investments, is that the best investment idea right now for that, for that money? And... 100% of the time, they say, absolutely not. I'm like, then why do you own it now? Obviously, in an overall portfolio, you should be diversified and have it aligned with your risk tolerance and your risk preferences just in your goals, just like we discussed in in our series on risk. But all that being said, you should know what you own and why. And what these top investors do very, very quickly is they know what they own and why. And if there's no, there's no why there anymore, they get rid of it. They're just ruthless. Another quote, it is the emotional non-professional investor who sends the price of a stock up or down in sharp, sporadic, and more or less short-lived spurts. The professional investor has no choice but to sit by quietly while the mob has its day until the enthusiasm or the panic of the speculators and non-professionals have been spent. This is from J. Paul Getty. At one point in the 60s, he was the wealthiest man on planet Earth. He was the Elon Musk of his day. He was the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffett of his day. The stock markets move in cycles that typically last a few years. Each cycle consists of a bull phase where the market rises by at least 20% off from a previous market bottom and a bear phase where the market loses at least 20% from a previous market top. Even within these bull and bear markets, stocks seldom move in one straight direction. With regards to investing over those market cycles, it is obvious that it would be extremely rewarding if one could make timely entries and exits into the market by anticipating its short-term and long-term movements. Unfortunately, since numerous investors try to do just that, this is an incredibly hard task. In this chapter, I take a closer look 
at how some of the best investors try to capitalize on market movements. None of the top investors attempts to forecast the market's behavior. They actually unanimously decry crystal ball gazing as an exercise in futility. They also seldom try to make profits from short-term market swings. Instead, the top investors anticipate long-term movements and position themselves accordingly. This reminds me of a quote from the famous um, hockey player Wayne Gretzky, just the dominant force in hockey for when, during his tenure at the NHL. And he said he was not the biggest player. He was not the fastest hockey player. His, what he said was pretty wise. He goes, you don't skate where the puck is. You skate where the puck is going to be, and it just comes to you. And I think that's what these, as investors, these guys are doing. You try to see where things are going to go, and you just put yourself right where it's going to be. What people who are chasing hot stocks do is they're going where the puck is. And by the time they skate to where the puck is, it's already moved. Back to the book. Since investors focus on the disparity between value and price, they see market cycles as opportunities to buy cheap and sell expensive. More precisely, smart investors see the bottom of bear phases as compelling buying opportunities because then many stocks are trading far below their intrinsic value. Conversely, they are cautious around the tops of bull phases as stocks usually trade far above their intrinsic value at those moments. Although the idea of buying close to market bottoms and postponing purchases close to market tops seems absurdly simple and obvious, the vast majority of investors seem to be unable to put this into practice. Most people do just the opposite. They buy close to market tops and sell or at least refuse to buy close to market bottoms. Have we seen any of that in our careers? All the time. All the time. Invariably, we'll get a lot of new inquiries for investing after a period of really strong stock market growth. And we will typically also see some of those same people really struggle when things are tough and markets have a pullback or correction or volatility. If they see a statement where their value went down, I mean, it's the tolerance just sometimes isn't what they thought it was. And that's why it's so critical to, to know yourself and know what's going on in your portfolio. These indicators are not foolproof and they require a high degree of subjective judgment. They are also not intended to give the accurate moment in time where markets are likely to bottom out or top out. They rather give an indication about whether a patient and contrarian investor should get on board or not. Bearing in mind these caveats, and because every single one of these indicators in isolation may not be reliable, it is advisable to always look at various indicators. Everybody's looking to simplify everything down to one thing. What's you, the one thing I can look at? What's to the make one my thing? Decision? The, the bit, most popular phrase starter in Google searches is what's the best? Well, guess what? There is no best. You got to look at it all. The indicators that are most closely watched by top investors are market sentiment, valuations, imbalances, insider transactions, and catalysts. So on sentiment, bull markets end 
when most investors are fully invested. They have no money left to push prices higher. They're all in. Due to a high level of optimism about future returns, bear markets end when the last pessimist throws in the towel a widespread conviction that a rally off the bottom is a sucker rally is a bullish indicator because this suggests that investors are bearish. So I'm going to go through this really slow because that one's, that one's a meaty sentence there. Okay, so think this through. If bear markets end when the last pessimist throws in the towel, then what happens here? It says a widespread conviction that a rally off the bottom is a sucker rally. So the market's gone down and down and down. It bounces upward. And every single person says, don't do it. It's still going to go down further. And when that's unanimous, that he's saying it's a bullish indicator. When everybody's in agreement, it's usually going to go the other way. And so he suggests that investors are bearish. For instance, Anthony Bolton correct, correctly predicted that the stock market rebound from the March 2009 lows was likely to be sustained since the dominant market conviction at that time was that the stock market was going to double dip. Valuation. Although the discrepancy between estimated fair value and stock price is a good predictor of returns over the long term, he writes decades here. I've said this over and over again. There is research to show that Valuation has a tight correlation with very long-term results. If you buy the market or an investment when it's cheap, you're going to have a steeper slope over time. If you buy a stock or an investment when it's really, really crazy expensive, from a valuation standpoint, you're going to have a tougher time making good returns over very, very long periods of time. Back to the book, valuation metrics are not particularly useful to forecast short to medium-term market movements. To determine turning points, valuation metrics should always be used in combination with other indicators. He's pretty strong on this. Use more than one thing at the same time. Don't just look at one thing. Imbalances. Similar to valuation imbalances, there are a number of other imbalances that can persist for quite some time, although they tend to normalize over the long run. Imbalances are useful indicators for future market direction over time horizons of several years, but they are less useful to determine turning points. So turning points being short term. For shorter term movements, they should be used in conjunction with other indicators. Now, as we were bouncing around the book and we're skipping pieces of huge amounts of detail here that he gets into, and that's why you know it seems like we're He's repeating himself back to back. But really, there's there's just so much good information in this book that we just couldn't cover every single thing. So back to the book. An example was the technology bubble of the late 90s, where the technology sector commanded a historically excessive 30% of the value of the S&P 500 index. And during the collapse of the technology sector in the early 2000s, many other stocks that were unrelated to technology fell in sympathy, and the S&P 500 suffered a bear market. So that was an imbalance. That sector all of a sudden made up too much of the overall market. And granted, it's the future. It maybe deserves a bigger piece of the pie, and over time it kind of settled into a bigger piece of the pie. But you got to look at things at the extremes, and when something's at its extreme, you might want to just pay attention. 
again, you can't just look at just that one thing. And this is the thing always, one of the things that, that I notice on, on social media, when people post a graph of one indicator, there's always going to be somebody piling on that says, oh, there's other, there's other considerations. And of course, there's other considerations, but you can't post your whole world in one social media post. It's social media. If it's Twitter, you only have so many characters. You can't provide a full tone. Some people will do these. Um, it's like a whole thread of various tweets that are all linked together so they can tell a multifaceted story in, a, in Twitter. But you still can't. It, you can't really get substantive value from learning if you're just paying attention to something just at the surface. There's always more beneath the surface. Of course, there's more than one thing. And he's underscoring it here in this book. And if there's not more substance, then maybe that's a sign that whoever is doing the investing doesn't have a real strategy in place. Yeah, and likewise, if you have that troll on the internet or that, uh, I'll, I'll say, helpful critic, <laughs> rather, on the internet, um, who's there to assist and help you in finding the right answer because they want to collaborate with you. They're, they're not there to really prove you wrong or pound their own chest and inflate their own ego. They're really there in a helpful manner. If that person doesn't have a deep, nuanced level of backing to their own philosophy or, or, or thoughts on the matter, that should be a clue as well. Maybe that's obvious, but I've seen people fall for and get baited sometimes on something that's very simple. And it's, you know, thanks, Captain Obvious. We know there's more than one thing in the world. Insiders. Another way to gain insight into the level of the market is to observe the actions of corporate leaders. Obviously, Corporate leaders are human beings that can make mistakes, but they are more knowledgeable about the business conditions and the fair value of their business than the average investor. Catalysts. Some top investors look for catalysts that may trigger a change in the direction of the stock market. Although a powerful catalyst can be helpful to determine a potential turning point more accurately, it is usually very difficult to find reliable ones. In addition, even the most effective catalysts are unreliable when no other indicator confirms the change of direction. Therefore, top investors don't typically look for catalysts. So he's saying some have, but again, it's hard. You got to combine it with other things. I think of the advent of radio back in the 20s. I think of the internet coming online back in the 1990s for mainstream the internet was around yeah. in the 70s and 80s, but it really TV, went TV, cell phones, all these the huge innovations. Right. Mm -hmm. But just because that catalyst is there doesn't necessarily imply there's going to be a market movement. He underscores this theme again. He goes, investors are advised to restrict the number of indicators they monitor to those that really matter and to ignore unproven fancy indicators. It is worth stressing once more that sentiment Valuations, imbalances, corporate insider transactions are not reliable methods for anticipating turning points or even short to medium term movements in the stock market. They should be all used together. And one should only pay attention to extremes in these indicators. That's something he didn't hit on and I want to hit on that harder. Whenever you're looking at a lot of these indicators over time, looking at charts, you're looking back, you're trying to find these patterns in when things mattered, I completely agree. It's the things that stand out dramatically over time. It's when 
the, the proverbial rubber band is so stretched in one direction or another that it's painfully obvious that something is going on that's very, very, very different. There's a lot of noise along the way. But when you see something that's like higher or lower than it's ever been before, that should be a clue. So that's what, that's, that's what he's getting at. You want to pay attention to extremes in indicators. Even then, there is no assurance that they will help to accurately identify turning points. Indeed, as the late 90s and the late 2010s have shown, valuations, market sentiment, and imbalances can remain at dangerous or attractive levels for years on end. In summary, the above indicators must be used only as guidelines to assess the long-term potential of the stock market. Top investors position their portfolios based on their interpretation of these indicators, but they realize that they may be wrong in the short to medium term. If most people who are doing this themselves, beginner investors especially, if they're picking stocks right now, my impression from listening to people is that most of them have only a short to medium term focus on things. And what, this, what, what Frederick's saying in this book is that even the top investors with the best records over time, they don't even pay attention to that stuff. They recognize how chaotic that is and that it's not likely that they're going to do, be able to, to forecast these things in the short term or even the medium term. They have to think long term. They have to think longer term. And finally, there's some mental requirements and attitudes that seem to be in common across all these top investors. With a few quotes here, we'll start. The most common cause of low prices is pessimism, sometimes pervasive, sometimes specific to a company or industry. We want to do business in such an environment, not because we like pessimism, but because we like the prices it produces. It's optimism that is the enemy of the rational buyer. That's Warren Buffett in his, one of his letters to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. Here's another one. The time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy. And the time of maximum optimism is the best time to sell. John Templeton. When I see hysteria, I usually like to take a look to see if I shouldn't be going the other way. Just about every time you go against panic, you will be right if you can stick it out. That's Jim Rogers. So what are some of these requirements? He lists them here. Mental fortitude to go against the herd. We mentioned that earlier. But Warren Buffett says that investors should be greedy when others are fearful and vice versa. Patience and discipline. You've heard that throughout this book. Top investors are patient and disciplined in sticking to their strategy even if this leads to temporary underperformance versus the market. Every single investor should hear that again. Top investors are patient and disciplined in sticking to their strategy, even if this leads to temporary underperformance versus the market. Independence and critical stance. Top investors ignore the current headlines in the media and form their own opinion based on facts, history, fundamentals, and the price value gap. So what's a price value gap? It's like, hey, price is 20 bucks. It's worth 30 in our opinion. That's a gap. Humility. 
top investors are humble. It's to your point, Dan, because they know that greed and hubris are fatal when dealing with market cycles. They seldom try to forecast short to medium term market movements and they ignore economic predictions. Jim Rogers, for instance, openly admits in the financial media that he's not smart enough to predict how the markets will behave in the near future. And yet, what do we all, what do, we all do? We log into our website and we look at what the experts are saying, what they're predicting, and who gets all the clicks and all the likes and all the ratings. It's the people making predictions. The talking heads that come out on the media and they say it's going up or it's going down. And we had a partner that's now retired who used to be on television interviewed and the instructions he got when he was by the front of the producers was just keep them from changing the channel. Doesn't matter what you say, just keep them from changing the channel. That's the objective. And that tells you everything you need to know about the financial media. They just want your eyeballs because that's how they make their money. They're playing a different game than you are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Tolerance for losses. People who can't accept the occasional depreciation of their stock portfolio with equanimity should not be in the stock market. It's kind of a big statement. It continues on here. Those who can't tolerate losses will never be able to exhibit the psychological requirements discussed above, like going against the herd, being patient, and remaining independent. Stock investing is not for everyone, and Warren Buffett warns that one should stay away from stocks if one can't stand losing about 50% of one's investment. And I think they're not, I don't think they're talking about the overall stock market, but I think they're talking specifically about individual stocks there. If you're a stock picker, if you're going to think you're going to make all your money by picking stocks and doing better than the overall market with your serious money, with your serious money, as I'm reading this, the odds are not in your favor. Am I wrong? No, this is hard stuff. Common buying and selling mistakes. Picking tops and bottoms. Top investors unanimously reject bottom fishing and top picking. They don't believe that anyone can reliably call the top or bottom of a stock because stock price movements are far too random. They see bottom fishers and top pickers as reckless and overconfident speculators. Even more, they warn people against the dangers of these practices. Another, another mistake, selling a winning stock and buying it back at a lower price. Numerous investors have tried to squeeze an extra profit out of a strong stock by selling it with the aim to buy it back later at a cheaper price. You know, I'm going to, it's, it's in a trading zone. I'm going to buy it when it hits the top of its trading zone and I'm going to, I'm going to sell it when it gets to the top of its zone and I'm going to buy it back when it falls. But few people realize how hard it is to successfully pull such a trade off. Warren Buffett says, if you're not willing to own a stock for 10 years, don't even think about owning it for 10 minutes. Emotional trades are mistakes. While enthusiasm may be necessary for great accomplishments elsewhere, on Wall Street, it almost invariably leads to disaster. That's Benjamin Graham. For people who don't know who Benjamin Graham is, he was Warren Buffett's mentor. Investing can get very emotional. People tend to overreact to surprises, especially when these surprises are negative. They can build a cozy bond with a stock, or they might find it unbearable to exercise patience. While intelligent investors postpone transactions when emotions are running high in order to shut emotions out of the decision process, the average investor gets him or herself in trouble through emotional trades. We spend a lot of our practice dealing with just that with all of our clients. 
to address emotions and the market swings. And we get those phone calls, 2008, 2009, we fielded quite a number of phone calls. And even back in the day with the tech bubble, people have trouble with their emotions and, and they got to talk it through. And not everyone is a seasoned professional at doing this. People have made mistakes. Yeah. Those emotions get a hold of you and next thing you know, you've sold out of something that you would have fared better holding or you bought into something when you really shouldn't have. You know, we even had one, one client who in 2008, in the midst of everything, had no money in the stock market at all. They still had an investment portfolio with us. They were still mostly in bonds and cash, very conservative, you know, retired person. And uh, they, they, they called up in right after Lehman Brothers failed. And they called up and said, I've had it. Sell everything. Send me a check. I'm moving everything to the bank. Even though everything we had here was, you know, very conservative, bond-oriented, cash-oriented portfolio with no stock exposure whatsoever. She was actually up for the year when she made that call. It was just too much. Couldn't take it. Just because the news out there. They, we had people that wouldn't even open their statements. They were so emotional because they were just out of fear. And on occasion, we'd call people up and they'd say, I, I don't even want to know. I don't, I, I don't, don't tell me. I don't want to know. How bad is it? And you'd say, you're, you're actually barely touched or because you're so conservative to begin with or you're actually up or you're down a little bit but not not nearly what you think it is and they're like i was afraid to open my statements you want to stay away from making big decisions with your money out of emotion sometimes a good advisor can help you with that people also hold on to a stock out of the need to be right ego problems are ubiquitous in the investment world many investors just want to be right they are reluctant to give up their view because they see an admission of error as a defeat. Smart investors, on the other hand, know that they are not in the business of being right. They are in the business of making money. Do you want to be right or do you want to make money? They don't have large egos. They stay humble vis-a-vis -vis the market. And they change their views when the facts indicate they should. We talked about this a little, a little bit ago. The best investors get out of something when they realize they were wrong. They change their behavior. They adapt quickly and effectively. And that way they prevent making big mistakes. Acting on what is generally known. Making money on something that is well known and processed by most other investors is extremely hard. Intelligent investors ignore old news. They look for what may surprise the market. So there's just a couple lines on this, but this is kind of a, a big one because I'll see sometimes somebody will try to post something on social media that's like a news story from a week ago. It's the first time they saw it and they're excited and they're trying to be helpful and they want to let everybody know, hey, there's this new news, but the news is a week old or a month old. And they say, hey, now that this is out, how do we all profit from this news about this business? And the answer is, it's over. By the time we all know about it, the world already knows and has adjusted. Some of these big investors, the institutional investors, they're adjusting milliseconds after the news comes out. They have computers that do this stuff. And the idea that you're going to be able to outperform the market based on something that everybody already knows about, thats it's just a mistake. Another mistake is trading in the belief that this time is different. 
John Templeton stresses that the four most dangerous words in investing are, quote, this time is different, end quote. It's a big mistake for investors to buy or sell on new era theories that invariably accompany asset bubbles or depressions. Intelligent investors do not believe in new eras where the economic laws of the past would no longer be valid. Their critical stance seems to be vindicated by Carmen Reinhart, who shows in her book, This Time It Is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly, that this time is different and has been used time and again over the past eight centuries to justify asset bubbles before they popped. Everyone says, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but we've never seen this before. We've never had a situation where there was going to be an internet. And the answer is just wherever it says internet or cell phones or electric cars or new forms of healthcare or new ways of farming or whatever it is, just insert the word innovation because innovation has happened over the course of humanity's history. It's not new. This lady wrote a book about 800 years of it happening. Don't think that this time is different. If you're in a speculative mania, it's human nature. Human nature doesn't change. We talked about that earlier. So because of all these mistakes that people can make, because of all these cognitive biases that can cause errors in people's judgment, all investors, this is back to the book now, all investors have to manage their risk exposure if they want to survive in the market. And Morgan Housel talked about this in his book, Psychology of Money. You need to avoid financial ruin at all costs. You have to survive if you're going to continue to be in the investment world. You have to, your portfolio needs to survive. You can't afford to lose it all or lose big. So risk management's key. Here's some risk management techniques of top investors. Now, Frederick goes into a lot more than what we're able to cover here, but we're going to hit some of the high points. Number one, discipline. Intelligent investors don't chase profits. They avoid hot stocks or industries that are popular. They insist on a serious margin of safety in every trade. They are selective and only buy when they have a true conviction. They don't get carried away by the market waves of the moment. They don't set up trades that could wipe them out. If there is even a remote chance that something can go wrong, you know, they just don't get involved. And they don't switch strategy due to temporary underperformance or due to external or internal pressure. Their goal is consistent performance that beats the market over the long term. So there's this discipline thing. And you mentioned this, that there have been times in, in the past where very smart people lost their discipline and it blew up their whole situation. A good example is long-term capital, the hedge fund back in the late 90s. They had some very, very wealthy partners that had everything. They were very, very smart. They were very successful. But they took too big of a bet in one area and it wiped them out. Top investors reject the popular idea that a high level of diversification is necessary to limit risk. Nevertheless, one must understand what smart portfolio concentration really means. Yeah, when you when we 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 debated this one back and forth when when we were going over this, because for the masses, most people really do need to be diversified in their portfolio because of all the mental and emotional things that that go on in people's brains. You can, if you're concentrated and things are volatile, 
that can throw most people completely off their game, especially if they're, if they're delegating to an advisor. Because if you don't thoroughly understand what you own and why, it's harder to be concentrated, right? It's just not wise for most people. But again, this is a book about professional stock pickers. So nevertheless, one must understand what smart portfolio concentration really means. Great investors don't bet the farm on any single idea. They realize that on average, they are right on a stock no more than 60% of the time. So they better have extremely good insight and a strong conviction that the odds are overwhelmingly in their favor. Portfolio concentration obviously only makes sense for true stock pickers. These people do this for a living and understand that they're wrong almost half the time. And they have organizations set up to support them and do additional ongoing research. They have expensive access to, in, to tools and information and news feeds and data analysis software that you can't even afford. You'd have to buy a house or sell your house to have some of the access to the, some of these softwares and some of these tools. And they're still wrong 40% of the time. This is not easy, folks. Another technique is position sizing based on stock type. Investors must take smaller positions in businesses that are harder to evaluate, that are less stable, and that still have, a lot, have to prove a lot, or that are exposed to more outside risk. Another one is, as a rule, small companies should be smaller positions in the portfolio than larger companies. Another, one, another thing they look at is the intrinsic business diversity. So the risk of companies with a high degree of diversification is lower than a single business company. So ideally, you want multiple streams of income. Where do they make money from? Lots of places. That's, that's a sign of strength. They trade in a number of securities that have a limited correlation with one another. So the idea is you don't want to have everything up or everything down at the same time. Different industries, different businesses, they may behave differently from one another. And these smart investors often will structure their portfolios to take advantage of that so that they never have everything go up or everything go down all at the same time. A big area that Frederick spends a lot of time on here is how these investors use cash balances very strategically. So there's a quote here, the wise ones bet heavily when the world offers them out that opportunity. They bet big when they have the odds and the rest of the time they don't. It's just that simple. That's Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway. The key phrase is in the rest of the time they don't. You don't bet big unless you're sure, unless you really feel good about it. Otherwise, manage the risk. The big problem of cash is that it's expensive. Cash is a drag on returns in bull markets and can therefore cause serious underperformance versus the market. That's also the reason why most investors don't see cash as a strategic asset class and why they don't manage their cash balance actively. We, we occasionally get pressure from people if they've got some cash in their portfolio that's part of the model. Sometimes we'll get some pushback. Hey, I want my money working for me at all times. Don't have anything in cash there. And that's just part of the process. It's understandable. I mean, there's, there is that, that, that idea that my money is only working for me if it's invested in something besides cash. 
But the top investors, on the other hand, do give cash the respect it deserves. They hold cash in the safest cash accounts and in the safest and most liquid bonds around. They deliberately manage the amount of cash in their portfolio under all market conditions. They only invest when they see opportunities. In the absence of opportunities, they prefer to keep part of their funds in cash. This also implies that they usually grow their cash balances as bull markets get overstretched. Some top investors constantly hold significant amounts of cash at all times in order to reduce volatility and to have dry powder when something bad happens in the market. Benjamin Graham recommended keeping at least 25% to 50% of one's assets in cash depending on the market level. They have the courage to move a significant part of their portfolio into cash when they don't trust the markets. They stick to their guns even if the cash drags their performance down for several years in a row. Not a lot of people have the patience to watch themselves underperform for two years. If you're underperforming for a couple years straight, that's challenging even if the process may prove out to be a good thing. The top investors also play defense in valuation. They always try to pick to buy a stock at a steep discount to its intrinsic value. So the idea here is you're, you're buying something when there's not a lot of downside left. Even the practice of selling right before a stock reaches full value is defensive as it ensures that the shares of the investor are never overvalued. So some, I've seen some value investors where when the price of the stock gets to be about 90% of what they think it's worth, they start getting out of it. So they never really hold it for it to ever get overvalued. They never will. It's just their, their own process, their discipline. But like with buying and selling, there's also common errors in risk management. One, there's a distorted perception of risk due to the changing risk tolerance. Well, we covered this in our recent series on risk, that perception of risk can move around and be inaccurate and change over the short term. In 2020, stock market, right after the COVID decline, was just going straight up April, May, June, July. And a lot of the posts we were seeing in our those Facebook groups People were looking at that market as it's a no-lose situation. They lost a sense of the actual volatility of the stock market because for that period of time, it was just going in a straight line and they lost the bigger, longer perspective of the market and that it can move down. Not, it's not always up. It's not always a straight line up. No, and we, we see people's, their perceptions change. And we, I know we covered this in previous episode, but you know, at or near market peaks, meaning after the market's done really, really well for a while, a lot of folks will come and say, hey, um, I'm thinking about getting more aggressive now. Likewise, when markets are in really, really bad times and they've declined significantly, especially over multiple months or multiple quarters in a row, you'll have some people that say, you know, I'm thinking about getting more conservative now. Well, this is all about risk perception. People perceive less risk when they look backwards and everything's been, quote, doing well. And people perceive more risk after things have declined recently. And it's just human nature, but it's also not necessarily the best behavior to set them up for future success. You want to buy low, sell high. 
Another error in risk management is not even knowing your own risk profile or your own risk tolerance. You should know your risk tolerance. And as we discussed in our prior episode, you need to know what your minimum risk to meet your goals is and the maximum risk to meet your goals is. You need to know those three numbers. And I guess the fourth one is you need to know how much risk is your portfolio taking because you want them to all kind of match, right? Your portfolio should be between your minimum and maximum. And it should be close to your tolerance. And your tolerance should be between your minimum and maximum too. An underestimation of price shocks and black swans is a common error in risk management. He says here, lack of knowledge about financial market history is prevalent in the investment industry. A couple of decades after the end of protracted bear markets, severe market crises or spectacular price shocks, very few people in the investment industry have lived through such dramatic events, and many of the new professionals can't imagine what they mean for investors. If you haven't lived through it, it's just not real to you. And very few people, including advisors, have lived through multiple full cycles. It's very, very different when you go through it for real than if you read about it in a book. Another mistake is too much leverage. Leverage can work wonders when it works in one's favor, which is also the reason why it can be addictive. The problem of leverage is that it works two ways. It magnifies both successes and failure. Too many investors are attracted to leverage because of the former, with few acknowledging the latter. Leverage can wipe investors out when they are on the wrong side of the market during price shocks. And a final mistake that we see is probably, probably more tempting right now, actually, in 2021, when interest rates are so low, is that people have their cash in investments of low quality because they're seeking a better rate on that money. And what he says here in the book is, it is a mistake to reach for yield in one's cash account. Anything different from a low, very low yielding, plain and simple instrument or bank account should raise suspicion. In today's environment, interest rates are so low, my bank savings account is 0.01%. That means for $10,000 in my savings account, over the course of a year, I'll get $1 of interest. Wow. It makes me want to um, reinforce to all of our listeners to not only as you're looking at rates, the interest rates themselves, you need to understand the actual dollar amount before you choose to take action. So for a simple example here, if my $10,000 is going to earn me $1 and it's earning 0.01%, if I look downtown to find another bank and I see another savings account is earning 0.5%, that's about $50 per year of interest right. that I would earn for that $10,000. So as if I'm just looking at the percentages, I see, okay, 0.01%, 0.5%. That's a 50 times earnings potential. Right. But when you look at the actual dollar amount of what that really means to me, that's $50 that I'm going to get over the course of a year rather than $1. It's a $49 decision. Should I go through the hassle of opening up a new account, adding complexity to my world, more statements, more paperwork, 
and do all these things to try to capture an additional $49. Sometimes, yes, it makes sense to do it, but sometimes... Yeah, for, and for every every person with every different different incomes and situations, they may they may find that to be attractive. I think where 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 Frederick's going though with this is, you don't want to put your money in something that is at risk just to get a higher yield. It's one thing if you go from an FDIC account at one bank to an FDIC account at another, but we've seen situations where people are putting their cash money in places that are speculative sometimes i've seen people moving all their money to all their emergency money to places that have absolutely no stability i've seen people find new esoteric quote higher yielding special savings accounts where basically everything inside is completely leveraged well those those banks or those institutions online may or may not be able to keep it at a dollar a share on that fund you're invested in so what the i think what the author's case that he's making here is that if cash is supposed to be your safe money and it's there for safety and liquidity, then it should be safe and liquid as the priority. Now I'm with you. Like if there's, there is a potential friction there. If you're going to try to have to go through hassles in order to move your money from one institution to another. But if it's like FDIC insured bank account, savings account to another FDIC insured savings account, at least it's liquid and safe. I guess is what where maybe Frederick would would look at that. Right. But there's some things out there I've seen where people have like an online thing where they're getting like one, two, three percent in this environment. And stuff's not stable. It's not safe. And in some cases it's not liquid. Or worse, people are taking trying to seek yield. They're taking their emergency money and buying stocks that pay dividends because they think, oh, I'll just buy the S P five hundred index fund. It's doing so well. I mean, what could go wrong? And they're unwittingly taking risk with their emergency money. You want to keep your emergency money safe and liquid. Seems to be the theme, at least what he's talking about here. Yeah, my I guess my point, a little bit different than what Frederick was looking at, is especially in today's environment, just be mindful of the actual impact in dollars of making a move from one institution to another. Yeah, from a planning standpoint, rather than an investment standpoint, from a planning standpoint, it may not be worth your while. That, that's totally correct. get it. Totally get it. So that's about all we have on excess returns. Did you have anything else to add? It sounds very hard, and he did a great job outlining what it takes to get the job done and do it well. It's amazing. What I find f- fascinating is that none of these people really continued to outperform permanently. There is no magic formula that lasts forever. Some of them it did for a long time. It took great skill during that period, but I've noticed that a lot of them haven't continued. Either they got so good that they were attracted more money than they can actually put to work in that strategy, or the world changed a little bit and a new either competition showed up or the environment shifted so that strategy no longer was in favor, that kind of thing. For anyone out there who's thinking, hey, I'm going to just quit my job and pick stocks for a living, understand that if you started picking stocks anytime in the last five years, you have not experienced a 2008 level event with your serious money, you better know what you're doing and you better be paying very close attention to risk management and because you will be tested emotionally and your discipline will be tested. Just understand that this is, this is a, if you're taking serious money and picking, trying to pick stocks and especially if you're trying to do it for a living, it is not 
for the faint of heart. Once again, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Please subscribe. Please like. Please comment. Please find us on social media. We are at Fierce Fiduciary. You can also Google Fierce Fiduciary Podcast and find us anywhere. Dan, you're at from Facebook. I'm on Facebook. At Dan Alberth. Dan.Alberth. And I am at Brian C. Beasley on most platforms. We also participate in some Facebook groups. If you're looking to have a deeper conversation there about various things, there's a group called Investing for Beginners. And then Dan and I host a group called Investing and Financial Planning that provides some educational and learning material. So once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.